Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Graham Smith, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. Today we're broadcasting from the studios of the University of Technology, Sydney, or UTS. We've travelled to Sydney with support from Xinhuarezi, the home of Made in China, a quarterly on Chinese labour, civil society, and rights. This episode, we're talking to someone who found himself an inadvertent media star for all the wrong reasons. Our guest is China studies expert Feng Chongyi from UTS, who was prevented from leaving China in late March after several weeks of field work interviewing Chinese rights lawyers. He was interrogated for more than a week in Guangzhou, though allowed to stay in a hotel room, and stopped from leaving twice before his release was finally secured. Chongyi, how long have you been researching rights lawyers? When did you start that aspect of your research? I have been doing this for quite a long while, but、uh, I get、uh, lucky. I get an AIC grant to do it formally. An Australian Research Council grant. That's right. Starting from twenty fifteen, this is the third year and the final year of that project. Over the time that you've been interviewing rights lawyers, have you seen、um, their situation changing? Yes,、um, things I could do in the past are no longer tolerated. What kind of things? Let's say to、uh, have meetings, or lunch, or dinner with human rights lawyers in bigger numbers, four or six or ten.、Uh, I can still meet them one by one,、uh, but、uh, starting from last year, actually.、Uh, The security guys can cancel my dinners. In the past, they did not allow us to have meetings, formal meetings. But we were actually allowed to have tea to have dinner. But now they can cancel the dinners or the tea party. It seems almost a, a quaint form of control, like that、uh, you start、um, with dinner and then you work your way down to a small dinner, and eventually you might meet at a, a takeaway van, possibly. You know, or it, it just seems a, a quite incredible level of micromanagement. But did you experience this in your previous two trips,、uh, or is this a new level again? Yes, I mean, actually,、um, this is an open secret. As long as we touch down in China, we are sure that we are followed. Our telephone calls are taped. They know all about our travel plan. It's no secret to them.、Um, but in the past, they are satisfied to just stand by and watch over what activities we engage. But now, in last two years, they cancelled the meeting, cancelled the dinner. Even、uh, this time, they formally what we call detained. But actually, it's, it's、uh, in China we call border control, bin kong. That kind of punishment has been routinely applied to criminal lawyers, dissident, and liberal scholars. Of course, the other side to that sort of what you experienced is when people who are involved in rights law in China try to visit conferences overseas, and they quite routinely find themselves refused. So, in a way, what happened to you was symptomatic of what's happening throughout the profession. Yeah, that's right. the The unique case for me is that I'm not a resident in China. I'm, I'm a resident in Australia, although I did not change my passport. For those who are actually living in China, they are routinely blocked from leaving China. Remember that two lawyers who represent me, they are they are both forbidden from leaving China, going to Hong Kong or Macau or anywhere. 
And did you ever have any kind of explanation of what kind of information was being sought? What the reason was behind the border control measures being taken? Or the charge they used to stop us leaving China is endangering state security. But the Chinese authority defies state security so widely. They talk about economic security, political security, ideological security. <laughs> In my 10 days conversation, it, it covered a whole range of topics. It's very hard to figure out what exactly they, they want from me. And were you surprised that you were detained this time or did you see it coming? I always believe I'm a good commission member. I think I'm a good friend of them. I, I, over the years, I met friends within the establishment. Some of them very high-ranking, very senior uh, retired officials, but that does not prevent them from taking me. That's, uh, in that sense, quite surprised. Mm. You said you're a good communist member. You're not actually a party member. It's a quite a dozy situation. In China, very funny. I was a communist party member. And then uh, up until 2008, one of my very nice colleagues at Nankai University still helped me to pay the fee, the membership fee, in order to keep my membership there with or without my knowledge. <laughs> okay. In that year, the leadership changed at the Department of History College. And then they decided that because I'm not actively participating in the activities at the local branch, they transferred my file to the university party committee. Only the branch collect the fees. The party committee is not supposed to collect fees. According to party regulation, if I did not pay the fees or did not participate in the routine activities, I should automatically withdraw my membership. But again, it's very strange regulation that uh, the party can dismiss you. You are not allowed to <laughs> withdraw from the party. That means you, you abandon the party, you reject the party, that's not allowed. So in that case, my file still <laughs> rests with the party committee and then Kai. So technically, you're still a Communist Party member. So it's a very dodgy situation <laughs> because they did not formally expel me when I did not formally withdraw. So to what extent do you think it was... Um your detention was sending a, a broader signal or was it a matter of, I guess, local um, Tianjin forces, if you like? It has nothing to do with Tianjin. The whole thing has nothing to do with Tianjin. It's, it's the national operation. But do you think the, um, it was designed to send a message to you to stop doing this research into rights lawyers or was it designed for a bigger message perhaps to Chinese academics overseas or the... Uh, research community in general? They may solve all these different purposes because the topic they talk about, of course, about my research, about my activities in China, but also touch my activities in Australia as well. So there are many people similar to my situation who are resident overseas and so far have been somehow free going back and forth to China doing research and doing other things. It may send a signal that you are not allowed to do that anymore, to touch these sensitive topics as defined by the party state. Do you think part of why you're seen as threatening state security 
is that over the last year or so, you've been quite outspoken talking about um, Chinese interests in Australia and particularly um, Chinese interests in Chinese language media in Australia. Uh, is that something that could be seen to threaten state security? That is a part of it, as I said, because this, again, is a topic of our conversation. I would not disclose all the details of it, but uh, this part of the conversation, mm. um, of my activities, because I also uh, accept some interviews, media interviews, mm. talking about these issues in China. One thing on my part, even if I could not help China to transform to a democracy, but at least I can do something to defend freedom of press or democracy in this country. Mm. Um, remember that in the, in the old days in the West, we have an expectation that slow economic engagement we can have some sort of peaceful evolution. But now the dilation is the reverse. <laughs> they, they, are, they are quite successful to, to, to modify the political system here. A lot of things are quite detrimental to the freedom of uh, press, even academic freedom in universities. It's quite scary. And I guess maybe it would be interesting for our listeners to know your views more broadly, I guess, on, on the direction of China. So in, in a, a previous podcast, we had Min Xin Pei yeah. um, on the show, and he suggested that uh, China was in the mid to late stages of regime decay and that he suspected a major political change within 15 years. Where do you see China's trajectory on that big scale? Uh, do you still hold out some hope that there are democratising forces in China? I think I will be more optimistic than, than Min Jinping mm. in that case. He saw clearly the decay of the state, but I also see very clearly the growth of liberal or democratic force within Chinese society. The rise of right consciousness among the population, especially the netizens, and those among which Chinese call Yuan Min. The petitioners. The petition, petitioners and those underground unofficial Christians. These are around tens of millions of people. There is not a small number. But all these groups that you mentioned, the petitioners and the rights lawyers and all of these people, over the last few years, they found their space for manoeuvre has been shrinking quite significantly. I mean, given these kind of new controls that have been placed on people and the fact that we have seen many arrests and detentions, how is it that you are still optimistic uh, if you are in the Chinese cyberspace, you can see that they move to virtual space, like those WeChat groups. The level of political organization, political mobilization is still very strong there. The Chinese cyber police uh, close hundreds of thousands of those groups every day, but, and then they change the name. They call it Zhuan Shi Dang. Okay, they, <laughs> uh, they just change the name and re-emerge again. So these kind of things, I mean, we call it the cat and mouse game. They could not eliminate it, even for the group of human rights lawyers for the last 10 or 20 years. Originally, you, you can number them, 10 of them or 15 of them. But now we learn to openly declare them as human rights lawyers. You have a number of about 2,000. But there are a lot of them behind those human rights lawyers. Give them support, give them money, give them connections. When they get the suppression by the party state, the number is growing, loading, shrink. Some of them want to defend those lawyers who are taken by the party state. Like in my case, so many lawyers over China, okay, I come to your defense, whatever. The timing of your detention was very awkward 
because it came at a moment when the Chinese Premier Li Keqiang was on a visit to Australia. And we saw a huge mobilization of support for you. There were stories in the newspapers and on TV every single day. There was an open petition signed by academics around the world. How sort of helpful do you think that high-profile campaign was to securing your release? You're extremely successful. I said, so thank you very much. I'm extremely lucky in that sense. It's extremely lucky time for me um, mm. that uh, because of the visit of Li Keqiang to Australia and the plan of the visit of Xi Jinping to the United States, they want to do good business, they want to improve their image, and then they want to get over my case to do away those uh, media campaign by those lobbyists, what's the media? <laughs> those uh, large, large mate or those uh, hostile forces over the world that actually create extremely favorable situation for them to send me free. Otherwise, I mean, they can keep me much, much longer than you can imagine. Because there's always this debate about what is the best method to use in these circumstances. And even in your case, we saw this article by a News Corp journalist called Malcolm Farr. And he wrote this article saying that an inflammatory approach would anger China, that softly, softly negotiations behind the scenes would be more helpful. And that had there been more outcry, you know, you might have been detained for a longer time. It's absolute lapis. Absolute lobbies. If you do something on the table, they can keep you secret. They can do whatever. They can keep you whatever period they want to. Anything negotiate under the table or within China, they have absolute control. They will not change their mind because remember that they have their own definition of law and right. They could do anything. I mean, I think all of us sitting around this table have at one point or another been detained. <laughs> And it's a really peculiar experience because at the same time, it's quite scary, almost terrifying, but it's also quite boring. <laughs> there's an awful lot of waiting. There's an awful lot of sitting around. There's an awful lot of people asking you the same things over and over again. And I mean, you were in this situation for a whole week. Time almost stands still. It's a bit like Groundhog Day because you're doing the same thing over and over again. How, how did you deal with the kind of passage of time. <laughs> <laughs> they are young. They are all, all about 40 or 30 something. They are, they are much younger than me. If they allow me to ask me, I will bend the table and try to educate them. I give you an example. And they are met accused you are intentionally in state security. You, are, you, you know a lot of people doing this in China. They are, they are charged with the crime of uh, subverting state power. <laughs> and then how do you define state power? I can tell state power is defined in by constitution, by civil laws. So we are supporting the constitution, we're supporting civil laws. So we are actually doing everything to support state power. When you arrest me or, or detain me or, or arrest those lawyers, you are violating the constitution, violating the laws. You are the one who are subverting the state power. Do you know that? <laughs> I mean, one obvious question to ask is if you had been under surveillance before and you'd run into trouble before, why did you continue to go back knowing that you may also cause problems for the rights lawyers who you were interviewing? Because in China, we play a second of tacit agreement in that way. 
academic work. There's no forbidden zones for academic work. So there was a very extensive crackdown on rights lawyers. I think it was July the 9th last year. Yeah, yeah, last year. Hundreds of lawyers were swept up in one day. What kind of impact do you think that has had on the way that rights lawyers are able to operate? But actually, as I said, the numbers of human rights lawyers grows. Despite that? Despite that, grows very fast. A lot of them uh, now they have so many within group. They organize donations. 2,000 yuan or 3,000 yuan of one country yuan every month to support the dependence of those lawyers who are taken by the police. They publish the list. It's an open list. It's quite open challenge to participate despite all these very harsh suppression. You, you know, all those lawyers or activists taken by the police, so many lawyers raise their hand want to defend them. So what you seem to be saying is that in your estimation that clampdown is not really working. In fact, it's feeding a kind of rising movement to use the law, a constitutional movement to use the law against the government. Is that what you're saying? Yes. The number is growing very fast. If you go to the cyberspace, 709 is a very big symbol. And even this time, all their wives, their parents all come out. In the past, they will be uh, intimidated to... to, uh, Silence, but for the 709, all the dependents, all the wives' talents all came out to formally defend the lawyers and fight against the state. Also, a lot of business people come to support these um, human rights lawyers. I think you make an interesting point there in that when China gave the go-ahead for laws, as you put it, to be transplanted into China as a result of WTO accession mm-hmm. and other things, it led to a, a great spreading of law covering more aspects of life. Right. And initially it was, I guess, intended to just keep it at economic life, but you, but life doesn't work that way. If you cover economic rights, you start to open yourself up to other rights. Is, has that been your experience? Yes. I, I use the term ye, ye gong how long that the, originally... The Chinese leadership are naive enough to believe that law can be a valuable tool for them to strengthen the regime and have more liberal society, more liberal economy. And then on 2006, 2007, or 2008 in particular, they come to realize law become a real threat. So that's what we call the retrogression. Tao Tui, the Mr. Ye fight the real dragon. <laughs> Originally, they want to use the law and, and, and as, as a very convenient tool. And in the meantime, after the Cultural Revolution, they think some regulation or some law need to be there to protect their life, their power as well. But now the law has been used by the society, by the civil society, by the lawyers, to fight against the party that's uh, a optimistic part of the opening and reform is already transplanted into society and a huge proportion of the population are aware of their right and aware of their right are actually protected by those legal codes. That's precisely the which one the right defense come on the social space. It seems paradoxical that you've actually emerged from a very negative experience, but you seem to be actually quite optimistic um, about what you saw whilst in China. Yes, because after so many decades of our own, we call it Qimeng, 
enlightenment, the Chinese enlightenment movement through the internet. Those concepts, human rights, constitutional democracy, civil society, uh, the rule of law, all those concepts have been firmly established in the mind of educated Chinese. The authority, no matter what they do, they will not read it again. Even including the bureaucrats, some very high-ranking officials, when they get into trouble, the first thing is to contact with human rights lawyers to insist that they can only represent it by those human rights lawyers. So that become a very visible force within Chinese society. And finally, I mean, do you think that there are any lessons that you have learned about the way in which the West can or should engage with China from your own experience? If the Western countries or democracies are really serious about political stability, I mean human rights to law, they have to defend it very forcefully. If they submit to the request by the Chinese regime to have economic engagement at the expense of those human rights or the rule of law, that is very detrimental not only to the Chinese but also to democracies all over the world. Many thanks to our guest Feng Chongyi and to my co-host Louisa Lim. I'm Graham Smith and you've been listening to The Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Find us on iTunes or SoundCloud. You'll also find show notes on Facebook to learn more about Chongyi's research. This episode was recorded at the University of Technology, Sydney, and edited in Horwood Studios at the University of Melbourne by Gavin Neighbour, with generous support from the good people at Xinhuarezi. Go to their website to find mismatched shards of China, including essays, original artwork, and of course, our podcast. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and GIFs are courtesy of Seb Donta. Bye for now.